Hi, everyone listening. This is Karen Stefano, author of the forthcoming memoir, Vigilance, an autobiography of fear. And I'm thrilled to have with me today two guests, Susan Henderson, author of the novel, The Flicker of Old Dreams, and also Amy Wallen, author of the memoir, When We Were Ghouls. How are you guys? Great. Good, good. Uh, well, everyone, I, I want to give you a trigger warning. Uh, today, we're going to talk a lot about everyone's favorite topic, death. And we are talking today with two authors because death is uh, a theme where their two books uh, intersect qu quite a bit. And Amy and Susan, I've seen quite a bit on social media that your your book tours have morphed into something more akin to death tours. And what's been going on on your tour? Is there anything that you want to share about how that feels or any any kooky stories? Well, I think we've uh, we both have this uh, interesting outlook on death, and that was a common. A conversation piece for us and I've been um, visiting death cafes for many years it was actually an article I wrote in uh, a, a local San Diego magazine where I live and about the death cafes do you want to say what and, those are? Um, sure the death cafes are a conversational organization that got together it actually started in London and there's something like 1800 of them now around the world and you meet with and you have tea and cake that is always required and and then you have conversations about death they usually have it lasts about an hour and they have conversation starters and you sit at small tables and have a conversation about death and then you come back together with the bigger group and share your your conversational topics and that's what we're more or less doing or not it's not a grief counseling situation um grief doesn't really even come up it's just more about our curiosity of what happens to the body to us how do we have our estates planned you know people just don't want to talk about death and they're trying to make death a something that people talk about more openly and not be so afraid of it well and, maybe. And so at these, at these cafes uh, it, these are total strangers right yes mm -hmm. yeah every time well, wow. um, well, um, let's get right into the literature here. Uh, Susan, I'll start with you, and I'd ask you to give our listeners uh, just a, a brief taste of what The Flicker of Old Dreams is about, and then if you would, I would ask that you read for us a brief passage from the novel. Okay, so... The Flicker of Old Dreams is about um, the death of small town America as told by a mortician. And so I'm going to read um, a short piece. So the main character is Mary Crampton. And what I'm going to be reading from is a short piece. The first time she takes the reader down to the um, embalming room in the basement. And there's going to be a guest waiting for her down there, Mr. Mosley. The dead come to me vulnerable, sharing their stories and secrets. Here is my scar, touch it. Here is the roll of fat I always hid under that big sweater, and now you see. This is the person I've kept private, 
afraid of what other people would think. Here I am, all of me, scarred, flabby, covered in bed sores. Please be kind. When a body comes to our funeral home, it comes draped in a white sheet. The sheets begin clean, but soon they carry the essence of the one who died, first in silhouette, the contour of the nose, a valley or mountain at the stomach, the feet turned slightly in or out, the bumps of shoulders, breasts, chin. Before I move the sheet aside, I study this landscape. At first glance, it is like a field covered in fresh snow. Then the details become more visible. Just as a field of snow upon closer inspection shows signs of the life that is tramped through it, so will the sheet show something beyond its surface. There are smears and drips, a spot of blood from where the IV was removed, a stain from loose bowels not thoroughly wiped, the sticky smear of saliva, the gray shadow of one final sweat. I pull back the sheet and welcome Mr. Mosley to the bright white silence of my workroom. Take his cold hand and hold it gently in my own. His face, neck, and hands are red and toughened from years of working in sun and cold and wind. The rest of him is quite pale, soft. I don't often get to know my neighbors until we meet this way, and that is the case with Mr. Mosley. His wrecked body lies on the stainless steel table, a faucet near his head, a drain near his feet, and there is much to do, but first this, his hand. Here is the man, nothing to hide behind, no sheet or uniform or name tag. This is the man without his possessions, with chores left undone, with mistakes he can't make right, with nothing more he can prove. I'm right here, I tell him. It is what I have longed for my whole life. Perhaps everyone longs for this just to be and to have someone stay near. He does not complain that my hands are clammy. There is no pressure to be charming or clever. We are simply here together in this quiet. Lovely, Susan. I love hearing you read. Um, that's, there are so many great passages in this novel, and I, I think that one really captures the voice of Mary and uh, and and who she is, uh, Amy. I'm going to turn to you now and and ask you to uh, give our listeners the same setup and uh, tell tell everyone listening a little bit about when we were ghouls is about. And if you wouldn't mind reading for us too, that would that would be wonderful. And and everyone who's listening, uh, keep in mind that uh, Susan's book, The Flicker of Old Dreams, is a novel. And Amy's book, When We Were Ghouls, is a memoir. Right, yes. Um, I, my book is uh, basically the story of when my family was transferred from a small town, Nevada, to um, Lagos, Nigeria. And then we went to um, Peru and Bolivia. And the, um, the subtitle is A Memoir of Ghost Stories because there is this kind of constant disappearance of people. I don't know when people are coming or going, how long they'll stay or if they'll ever reappear again. And so this first part that I'm gonna read is a little bit in the middle of the first chapter, which actually starts in the middle of the story that I'm telling of this time of our family living overseas in the 1970s. And um, it takes place at a pre-Inca grave that my family 
was um, digging up in um, um, just outside of Lima, Peru. And uh, one other little thing just to explain, because it'll happen in this section that I'm going to read, is the memoir of ghost stories. I go back and forth with my memories. My memories are also coming and going, and I'm trying to figure out uh, what what's happening. In this particular one, I'll set some of that up for you, too. But I do go back and forth between the past and the present, and I'll try to acknowledge that so that the listener will know. The skeleton in the ground looked just like all the other skeletons my father had taken me to see at the Peruvian museums. With the body unwrapped, the diggers almost danced around me. I didn't see what there was to make all the hoopla about, all squatty and balled up like the skeleton was afraid of being beaten. Look how long his hair is, Mrs. Riley said. The long black hair of the dead man had grown down around his pelvic bone. He could have sat on it in the school bus as I could my own hair. But his hair was black and matted, caked with dried mud in places. The hair and fingernails keep growing after they die, my dad said. He always knew those kinds of things. I craned my neck around the diggers who had gathered around the body now and tried to catch sight of the dead man's fingers. His hands curled in under his chin, so I couldn't see whether his nails were long like his hair. One of the diggers reached down and grabbed a handful of the black tresses and lifted the skull, separating it from the rest of the skeleton. Then, like a lasso, he twirled the long ponytail of black hair and the wide-eyed skull over his head a few times before tossing it out of the grave they had dug. Mrs. Riley and my mom screamed as the skull sank in the sand. I followed suit with a scream until my dad laughed, and then I laughed, too. I don't recall being terrified like a normal eight-year-old might have been. This corpse was more of a specimen to me after all we had seen since moving first to Africa and then to Peru, a museum artifact, or it could have been. Now I scramble to the edge to see what's inside this grave. So now I'm going to go back to the present, and this is me on the phone with my parents, and they often argue with each other on the phone, so... <laughs> Mart, of course there was a body, my dad argues with my mom while I'm on the phone. We didn't have any respect for the dead, none. We were ghouls, she says. She lets her own memory flit from one thought, one belief, one ideal to the next, whatever suits her. Or does she? My own memory seemed to decide on their own when to show up, so maybe hers do too. I listen to her deny the pile of bones beyond earth. But I also fixate on the word ghouls. Something about me likes the idea of having a family made up of looters, grave robbers, and ghouls. The monsters incarnate. When I was young, I knew my mom was every bit as beautiful as Lily Monster. My dad is goofy as Herman. It's funny at first, then maybe not so funny. I kept the skull for years, a prince, my dad said. He had that silver band around his forehead. I hadn't remembered the silver band until he mentions it on the phone call, but now I recall how that was the determining factor that the body we had unearthed was valuable, was a person worthy of respect, or I guess respect during his lifetime. A crown, silver, or maybe it was tin, meant royalty to us. Oh, gads, that's right, my mom says. We kept that skull in the pantry. 
Her memories come in lightning bolts, like mine. No, it was Marty's skull, I say. He found it and kept it to make a lamp. It sat in our pantry until it didn't. Marty wasn't there, my dad says. My mind comes to a jolting halt, as though while shoveling sand I've hit titanium, and the blow jars me. Marty is the beginning of my tale. He was always the part I knew was true. Why is my brother in my memory so clearly? I know I heard his voice over the sand dune when we were digging. Why can I still see how he held up that skull and showed me the jawbone? Why do I remember him if he wasn't there? But I remember him, I say to my parents, expecting them to come around to my perspective. I remember his traipsing over the sand dune, just like the memory of the mummy I so distinctly recognized and which my father confirmed. No, I don't want this memory of Marty to go away, to not be true. I need my brother to be there. Otherwise, I would have been alone. I would have been hiding on the other side of that dune with the scattered bones all alone. Who would have come over the dune to find me? I make the decision, I will keep this memory. A truth exists inside that memory that I'm not ready to relinquish. A ghost I saw that I will keep to myself. Lovely, Amy. Uh, when I when I read your book, I was struck uh, by by a couple of things. The the way you tell your story through the lens of a faulty memory, and how our how our memories play tricks with us, and also the beautiful poetry of your sentences. I, when reading, I wanted to, it, it was like, it was a page turner, so I wanted to read really quickly, but I also had to force myself to slow down so I could really enjoy and appreciate the poetry of your sentences. So it's just, uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful memoir. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad I was able to make you fight within yourself there. <laughs> You've always done that. That's <laughs> true. Uh, let, let me ask you something, Susan. Mm -hmm. What do you think happens to us when we die? Oh, wow. Um, the So I was raised by scientists so some part of me wants to give the answer that my family would appreciate which is <laughs> go into the ground and we um we turn to soil and stuff and part of me believes that and yet i feel like i have a very full experience of people on the other side um i i feel like i connect with them still and I feel like I um well I have conversations <laughs> so I'm either having conversations with myself um but I I I have lots of uh moments where I have like the hair stands up on my arm and I'm like oh like a, a friend of mine died recently he sort of was like a brother growing up and I had the most real feeling that he brought my dog to me and yeah. and I had this moment with my dog and my hair was standing on end and then I felt amazing and better and then it was gone um so I don't really know what happens but I 
I guess the scientist, the kid of scientists in me also believes that um, matter never disappears completely. It changes form. And so I have some, some part of me believes that that is happening. Amy, same question to you. What do you think happens when we die? She's going to give the cynical answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to give a, I think I'm going to give a similar one, but somewhat different because it obviously is my story. But um, I am also the, um, I'm the daughter of a geophysicist and a narcissist. So there was no room in our house for God. So, um, so I, I didn't really grow up believing in an afterlife, but uh, I do have, I do believe that, for instance, there's more in this memoir about, especially as a child, trying to figure out, because, you know, this grave is filled with other artifacts, and, there, you know, obviously the Incans believed in reincarnation, and you take stuff with you in the afterlife, etc. so I was trying to reconcile a lot of that, and why is the stuff still there if it was supposed to go to the afterlife? Why is it there a thousand years later, you know, they forget it? But um, I also have a, a ghost story that really happened to me that was made into a play, and it was a very, I lived in a house for many years, and um, the ghost was pretty vivid and pretty much there and pretty strong to the point that when I moved out of that house, I was really sad to go. We had named him Harvey, and um, we had, you know, he was, he participated in our daily lives. And, but I also a lot, like uh, Susan, I, I did a lot of research on like what could this be? I mean, we were I knew we were moving and I didn't know what to do. I felt a little bad about leaving Harvey there alone. So I did research on those. And I um, you know, because I wasn't a believer. And I I but I had friends believing. Like I'd have people over and paintings would fly off the wall and fly across to the other side of the room. So I had friends believing and I wasn't believing, but I was believing. So Anyway, I came to find out it was actually a poltergeist and not a ghost because poltergeists make noise and ghosts make appearances. And Harvey never actually appeared. He just threw things at us. And um, and that they're trying to get to the other side is what this thing said, whether that or not that's what I I believed or not. And I was going to try to have a seance in order to um, get rid of him, which I never got around to doing. But then also more of what I researched, too, was that, again, it is your own energy and um, I was actually living with my, I, that was the first house I lived in with my husband at the time. And there was a whole lot of um, major, major lies going on. And I really feel like it was like uh, another kind of energy going on that was actually trying to tell me to get the blankety blank out of the house. Yeah. It wow. took me nine more years to finally get out of that marriage. But I think Harvey was trying to tell me, and I think he gave up. When I moved out of that house, he's like, yeah, you're on your own now. So. Yeah. Um, well, you know, thank you, Harvey. Uh, sometimes it, it, it takes us a, a while to get uh, the messages that the ghosts or poltergeists or the universe or however you want to call it, uh, our, mother trying, our mother are trying desperately to tell us. We just... We we want to uh, we want to think what we want to think. Um, exactly. Now, my take as a reader is that each of your books, although obviously centered around death and dying, they're they're about so much more than death. And Amy, I saw deep 
mother-daughter themes in your book, uh, among others. And Susan, I was really struck by Mary's uh, perception of her own loneliness and how she was such an outsider her entire life. And I, I actually think your two books intersect on this outsider theme too, but that's, that's my take as a reader. And so I, I wanted to ask each of you, what do you, each of you, as these books creators, think your books are about beyond death? And Susan, I'll start with you. The intention of my book, was what, what sparked me to write the book um, originally was the um, just the division between one American and another right now, whether it was you were watching the news or you were reading people's bumper stickers, but it just seemed like um, they were there were two Americas and that they were not um, respecting or um, able to hear each other anymore. And so um, I felt like I wanted to go to a small town and see if I could put my finger on what that was about or why we lost empathy for each other. And so that was my, that was the, the first instinct to that. There was something that I wanted to kind of dig and dig and dig at, which is always good for a book because if you're a slow writer, um, it has to be something you can dig at for years. Um, and it just became a story, I think, about people who um, fear change versus people who desperately want change and uh, what that relationship is like uh, when, when those people live in the same family or in the same community, um, the, the tension that that puts in relationships. And so it... But the the part about death was that when when I was in this town, it just it seemed like this town was in the process of dying, and it felt when I thought that oh I could tell the story of a dying town through someone who knows death um, and who who doesn't flinch. Um, that's when it became sort of an interesting puzzle for me to kind of work with all these things together. And doing research for uh, the flicker of old dreams, mm-hmm. you you went to a town and you holed up there for for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I stayed in a little town for a month. It was a town of 180 people, and uh, I didn't have internet or cell phone or um, a telephone or a TV or a newspaper, um, so I was pretty isolated. Um, I had I borrowed my brother's truck, and every every week I would drive to the big town of two thousand people to get Chinese food and just to kind of see color. Um, but yeah, I stayed there, and I just tried to. Um, I guess I, I was just listening. I was just saying yes to everything. I was asking people questions. What's this building? What does it do? What's this thing? Can I go inside? Um, so a lot of the research was just kind of on the ground and taking pictures and not really knowing what I was going to end up writing about. But um, I ended up uh, getting really curious about the abandoned grain elevator in their town and um, and these houses that were kind of tipped from the force of the wind and a town where every third or fifth house was empty. 
um, and and maybe empty for decades. It's it's the kind of town where um, nobody moves there, but people just move away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it just became when once I added a funeral home to the town, which doesn't exist in the real town, um, it became it, it just an interesting exploration of death in all of its phases: the death of a town, death of an identity, death of jobs, death of um, the body, um, and and then. You know, it's Amy and I are obsessed with death, and so it just, right. I couldn't really get enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and Amy, same question to, to you. Um, beyond death, uh, what do you, as the creator of When We Were Ghouls, think this memoir is telling? Uh, and, and specifically, I want to know if, if uh, you think there's a mother-daughter theme in your book or whether I was just projecting when I read it. No, there's definitely a mother-daughter theme. Um, no, I definitely a mother-daughter theme. And I think uh, a couple of things that, um, that I'm, as I was listening to Susan talk, I was like, it is interesting that you mentioned that our, our books intersect on several different places. And, mm-hmm. and one was loneliness, which I think is, is very true for both. I mean, that was my my story has this abandonment. My mom left me in Nigeria alone when I was seven. Um, and all my brother and sister had gone to boarding school and my dad was out in the jungle. So um, I was in Lagos. So I, and then there's a couple other times when she was good at leaving me alone. So there's a lot of that sort of loneliness going on. But another theme I was really working on in the story, which in the reading I just did, there's a moment when my mother, she calls us ghouls, but she also says we're hideous people. And so I started looking at that and I was thinking about how Susan was talking about these themes of, of our, the division of our country and how we're, um, you know, fearful and what is it that takes us there that I was, what I was thinking also with, with mine and which is what was my intention was, is how, as Americans, we tend to exploit other countries, uh, these third world countries. And that's what I was trying to also look at, is were we hideous people? How hideous were we as American expats? Um, what were we exploiting? My father was a, um, like I mentioned, he was a geophysicist and he was in oil exploration. And so the places we were going to, the idea was, of course, to find oil and and then get the oil and the riches, etc. So there was a whole other level of that. Plus, then my family were doing things like digging up pre-Inca graves. And a lot of it was just ignorance. Um, a lot of it was also thinking we deserved it. I mean, I was a little kid following along, but the you know the parents, the uh, our family and other families just felt like we, we pretty much as Americans own everything. And we have the right to whatever we want to take. And so I was really examining that and what is that all about and what does that do to us as as individuals as well as who we are as um you know uh first world country people who believe that we have this you know right to exploit these other countries so that was part of it and then that takes me back to the loneliness which is um i think as individuals we end up feeling um very deserted by other people because we're not really supporting one another we're just taking 
Um, let me ask you something else. You two are in Boston right now, touring once again together, right? Yes. And um, I saw the two of you touring together, and I got to see you uh, read and then sort of have a conversation about death and your respective books at uh, the fabulous, at the Book Catapult in San Diego. Yay, Book Catapult. Book Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, support your support your local bookstores, everybody. Um, are you guys doing any solo appearances? Or are you just kind of sticking with each other? I know, I know you you're also dear friends as well. Oh yeah, we've known each other for several years. Um, I'm doing some other events as well. In fact, I have one this Thursday. Well, it's with somebody else, but sorry, sorry, Susan. I know I'm. <laughs> And then it seems to be like this is the author thing now is people do group, you know, they do an in conversation with someone. But I think what Susan and I am, and I'll let Susan uh, say what she's doing as well, but um, what, we're, what we're doing is something a little different. It isn't just an in conversation about our books, but because we are wanting to talk about death and um, that, that, whole idea of how as a subject people aren't willing to talk about it openly um, in our society. People are afraid of it. Yeah, it's been pretty remarkable. So I, I'm doing other events too, but I always like my Amy events um, best yeah. because um, because you don't know where they're going to go. It's, right. What we do from the very beginning is we we might read a little passage from our books and and ask each other one question, but then we immediately open it up to the whole group and it becomes this giant group talk about our um, experiences with funerals and with burial and our fears about death. And and it really becomes a part of who, what people bring to us. And so it's never the same. And it's been really um, exciting because it feels like these are things that we don't talk about in my family. And, and I it's just it you kind of you wait till you're stunned and you're at a funeral and then all of a sudden you're dealing with death and, and we have all this language that kind of makes us not ever really talk about it and um and a lot of the times we don't talk about death until we're in the middle of grieving and then that's a terrible time to talk about sort of your curiosities right. and so, um it's been really interesting and people bring their own family traditions and their own cultural backgrounds to the conversation and um we hear about all people's different ways of burying their families and different um uh like some people wash the dead afterwards and some people don't have anything to do with it and strangers take care of it and um and it's just been really fascinating just to hear it, it makes it less scary, I guess. Yeah, I think so. One thing uh, Susan and I did together oh, in yeah. San Diego <laughs> was as soon as I picked her up at the train station when she arrived in town, you know, because I live in San Diego, and uh, is we went straight to a friend of mine's house who she had just had a home funeral for her great aunt and the body. We didn't actually get to see the body because the body had just been taken away the day before, but uh, she showed us everything that had been done for the home funeral and the whole setup at the apartment. And and that was one of the things that was interesting to learn more about because you don't have to go through a funeral home or um, even have the body embalmed or anything like that. It's not required and it's not actually necessary. And so it was interesting to talk to our friend, Karen Van Dyke, who does the death cafes. She started the death cafes in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And she gave us quite the 
the tour and showed us pictures of auntie all laid out and all beautified and and um and where they had set the they still had the table where she'd been lying. The and table. It was a massage table that they'd yeah. done wow. with blankets on it and then all the flower arrangements and they had faced her. The, uh, looking at a beautiful was, Yeah, it was looking out at the ocean or at the bay. You know, her, her apartment sat right on the water and so she looked right out at the at the bay. So it was just it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful situation and very peaceful as opposed to a cold funeral home. So mm. I'm sure yeah. funeral homes too, but. Yeah, it was interesting because I was there uh, with you all at the at the book catapult, where that uh, very organic conversation uh, took that turn, and it, it was I I think of myself as someone who isn't afraid of talking about death and who has a reasonably healthy perspective and perception of death, but. You know, I showed up expecting just a regular reading, um, which I don't know why I showed up having started at that point both of your books. Um, but I found myself feeling uncomfortable, and 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 I it was really it was really interesting, and I and so the the conversation uh, and I, I sat with that and I examined that, and uh, and it made me kind of reexamine. Uh, how how healthy uh, my emotions are around death and talking about death. So so thank you. Uh, you well, what were you uh, uncomfortable about the actual talking about it, or did it bring up stuff for you? Or I think nothing here. I think it. I, I think it just it wasn't the talking about it. It was. I think it just brought up stuff for me surrounding death. And I have to confess that I haven't, uh, in the, the couple of months that it's been, I haven't done the, the inner work to really explore what it was that, that made me feel uncomfortable. But it was just, it was a surprising moment of self-realization. Like, Karen, you're not as, you know, you're not as cool with this as, as you thought you were. And maybe well, you have some more work to do here. It's interesting because um, I did, probably almost a year's worth of research about embalming and stuff to, to write my book. And when I was first researching, I was, I was just kind of weirded out by, it's like, we really do this to people and, you know, learning how to do it and talk about it. And then, and then finding a character who was more comfortable with it than me. But it was interesting because when we were in San Diego and we met with Karen Van Dyke, She's so much more kind of fluent and comfortable in um, talking about death that I, I felt like it, I wasn't uncomfortable where she was taking the conversation, but I realized she was taking the conversation to places I'd never, ever gone, you know, kind of those taboo areas where like, oh, we don't use that word. We use passed right. on. Right. Um, and the fact that she dearly loved and cared for her aunt and yet could talk with just be totally real about the dead body and what happens was kind of jarring for me and um I thought it was interesting because we realize how much we just don't do that in our culture yeah that's interesting I like you you, you nail the the situation that I felt when you used the word fluent everyone who was talking just was so much more fluent uh than than I 
um, uh, in talking about death. Now we're we're out of time here, um, and I want each of you to answer one more question, if you'd be so kind. And I would like each of you to tell us listening and everyone listening in no more than three words. What would matter most to you at the end of life? Amy. Three words. Three. I said three words by themselves. <laughs> um, three words. So what would, uh, say the question again? I'm stalling for answer. Yeah. Uh, what would matter most to you at the end of life? Family, sunshine, and dog. <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Susan? Oh, boy. I'm terrible with three words. This is why I don't do Twitter. <laughs> I, I can't even do 42 words. Um, love, loved, and better. Like, left anything at all better than it was. Nice. I love it. Um, well, what a beautiful way to end this podcast. Thank you uh, so much for joining me. And everyone who's listening, I loved uh, Susan Henderson's novel, The Flickerable Dreams. And as I said, I also love Amy Wallen's memoir, When We Were Ghouls, a memoir of ghost stories. So um, happy touring, ladies, and go to Regina's Pizza for me, would you, in Boston? You can't miss Regina's. Thank you so much. <laughs>